chapter, uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. If you have your own Bible, read along with me in your own Bible. I have the English Standard Version up on the screen, so just kind of, you know, if you look from your Bible to the screen and there's a few different words, the different version will account for that. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners, okay, remember the Pharisees call these people the, the people of the land. The Pharisees and the scribes think that these people are lower than dogs, that, that God takes great pleasure when these people die or God is going to pour out his wrath upon these people. So Jesus is hanging out with them. All these tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes started grumbling because of their attitudes and their heart mindset. And they start saying, this man receives sinners and he even eats with them. That just goes counter to everything that's in the mind and the DNA of a Pharisee and a scribe. So Jesus told them, this parable. This is the first parable of three. And by the way, these parables are similar, but they build upon each other. They lead up to really one of the most popular parables of Jesus that you and I know, which is uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 4, what man among you, as he's talking to the Pharisees, what man among you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in an open country, or the wilderness, as another translation says, that, and go after one of the one that is lost until he finds it. Verse 5, well, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I want to stop right there. I want to ask this morning, boy, I've, I've, I've torn in my mind this, this whole week. There's some things that I want to share with you this morning, and I've even just been debating exactly how God wants me to, to share some of those things. So, would you pray for me? right now, and, and would, would you mind if I just take a minute and be very selfish and pray for myself and ask that God would, would use me and that He would be evident and that anything that I would say, that if it's offensive, that it would just be the, the will of God, that God is speaking to us and, and challenging us. Would you just mind if I do that this morning? Father in heaven, um, I am selfishly praying for myself, asking that you would use me just as your hand this morning that I would say nothing that would be of my own will and desire, that, um, Father, I pray that you would seek me and search me. Father, help me to articulate your word well. I've done my work of studying, I've done my work of praying, and now I pray that this time is all yours. And this morning, as, as we mine the truths in your word, I pray that you would, you would speak to us, your Holy Spirit would speak to us and confront us and challenge us in areas that we need to be confronted and challenged. Speak to us through your word. We know it's powerful. We know it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can pierce right down to us. So, Father, speak to us, and I pray that you would be the one speaking this morning, not just me. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, a proper understanding 
of this because, you know, when we first read this, we may not be real offended by this because we're removed by a couple thousand years of culture. We're removed by a couple thousand years of, of not being around the Pharisees, not being around the scribes, and not being right there in the Jewish context and understanding the dynamics. If, if we were there, I would imagine that some of us would become pretty indignant, I, I would guess. Um, and, and I just want to kind of bring this to light, and hopefully by understanding the culture and understanding some of the dynamics going here, I, I just pray that God would hope, help us to see this as Jesus would have taught it. Because remember, the Pharisees and the scribes get so angry at Jesus teaching these parables. You know what they ultimately do? What do they do? You know the story. They crucify Him. Listen, Jesus isn't just telling church stories that make people happy. Jesus is telling stories and telling parables that tick the religious society off so much that they seek for any way that they can to kill him. Now, that's not the thing that any pastor really wants, right? You don't want to make people so mad that they find ways to to get rid of you, let alone crucify you, and that's not my aim by any means, but it's fascinating that when we look at the Word of God and when we look at how Jesus told these stories, sometimes if we're allowing it to pierce us, it can really be, can be painful, quite honestly. I don't know if you've ever had that experience with the Word of God, but God speaks to us in times where it should really just pierce us down to the core of our being. Jesus is proposing some things to the Pharisees that make them really indignant, and kind of in light of last week's message, I hope that some of this will make sense. Jesus was proposing that just for the sake of the illustration, for the sake of telling the parable, that these Pharisees and the scribes, that they put them in in the shoes of a shepherd. Now, you got to get how degrading of a request that really was. Remember, these are people who, these are people who think that there's the people of the land, and God's going to obliterate them, and God's going to zap them, and God's going to take great joy and pleasure in zapping these people. Those are the people of the land. Now, the next step up on the social ladder would be the the last step that you could go down before you get out of any kind of legitimate occupation would be a shepherd. So, so Jesus is saying, listen, I know that you have this high stature in society, but just for the sake of an illustration, take a second and put yourself in the place of a shepherd. And I could just imagine in the mind of the Pharisees and scribes, you're asking me to do what? To think like a shepherd? Don't you know who these shepherds are? In fact, right after New Testament times, the shepherds were considered so low that they couldn't even testify in court. They, they became deceptive, they were full of lies in the mind of the people, and some of them probably were pretty crooked. But at the end of the day, people really didn't like shepherds. Well, in the mind of the Pharisees, there's some legitimate reasons in, in their mind. Well, they, couldn't, they could not live up to the laws of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees had come up with all kinds of laws. Last week, we mentioned 614 laws, 365 laws of things that you should not do, and the rest of those were things that you should do. Who in the world can know all of those laws, or let alone adhere to all those laws? But particularly, 
Actually, there's a group of laws that were manufactured. They were man-made laws. They weren't God's laws. They were man-made laws that they had made about the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. Always has been, always will be. Sunday is the Lord's day, right? And these man-made laws by the Pharisees could not be adhered by everyone, particularly this group of shepherds. Because shepherding was a a seven-day-a-week occupation. You just didn't leave the sheep. And and when you did, it was for very, very, very brief periods of times. So these these Pharisees were thinking, these guys can't keep the Sabbath laws. Well, that is to say the Pharisaical Sabbath laws. These These people were unskilled. They were uneducated, and really they didn't fit in anywhere else in society because of their lack of skill and because of their lack of education. And chances were is that their daddy was a shepherd, and chances were that their daddy's daddy was a shepherd, and that's kind of how you fell into these different categories back in Jesus' time. So asking the Pharisees to think that they were shepherds just for the sake of the illustrations, pretty repugnant, pretty degrading. So Jesus isn't starting on a real good foot with them. On top of that, he says, now imagine that you're a shepherd and that you have a flock about the size of a hundred. Now just to put this into to perspective, a, a, a flock the size of a hundred, there's two possibilities. What was really common during Jesus' time was that the village people who had sheep would get together and they would hire shepherds to watch their flocks together. And so there wasn't just a, a single flock of a hundred. And so they would, they would get together and they would have multiple uh, people's sheep, multiple owners all compiled together and, and that would make up a hundred. Another possibility would be that there was someone who was fairly modest means and probably one of the wealthiest people in the town if you were going to have a hundred sheep. The average person didn't have anywhere close to a hundred sheep. Really, whatever way it was, it it doesn't really matter for the sake of the parable, but I just want you to get a sense of it. Well, for a hundred sheep, especially during Jesus' time, there wasn't a single shepherd. In fact, probably there was at least three shepherds to properly care for a hundred sheep. You see, what shepherds did is they would count the sheep multiple times a day. So they would check them uh, first thing in the morning. They would check uh, uh, the count right around lunchtime, noontime, and then again in the evening before they take them into the sheepfold if they were going to go in for for that evening. So there were several shepherds that took care of a flock that size. So when one shepherd leaves the 99, it's not like the shepherd is completely gone and those 99 are now completely vulnerable and nobody's there to take care of them. Another idea that you might find interesting is about a sheep wandering off itself. And I've done a little bit of research on this and I'm going to give it to you the best of my ability and my understanding. And some of you that know more about sheep, you might be able to confirm this or or maybe you'll be able to take me to school. But this is what I've found. Uh, some, some potentially life-threatening realities 
of a single sheep wandering off. So this, this single sheep, when, when he wanders off, it's just not like he's going to, you know, like, not like Looney Tunes and Wiley Coyote is going to come and then Ralph the dog is going to beat Wiley over the head and bring him back. Everything's going to be good. No, no this, is, this is really a dangerous and this is a really serious situation. This, this sheep could possibly and maybe even likely lose its life because of the environment and because of the times. It would be vulnerable to predators because it's left the flock. Um, it it uh, may, uh, he, the heat itself, and it, some of you have been to, me, uh, to Israel with me, you know that the heat there, particularly in the Judean wilderness, or as the ESV says, in the open country, it can be hot, especially during the, hummer, the, the summertime. So it could be, uh, it could be inter- injured just because of the heat itself and the harsh environment. Um, it may not be able to find water. And as a result of not being able to find water, it can quickly dehydrate and could possibly die just because of dehydration. Um, so the heat could possibly. Uh, I've even found something, and I checked with one of the farmers who's done, checked with a few other farmers, that it, it's, it's likely or it's possible that these sheep, that if they fall over, evidently sheep if they're short and stubby, have a hard time getting up, and depending upon the amount of wool, they, like a, have you ever put a turtle, not that I've done it, have you ever put a turtle on its back, or seen a turtle on its back? What do they do? They can't get over, right? And there are videos on the internet of sheep that are stuck on the, on their backs. So, whether or not that that is completely 100% accurate, but evidently, sheep can get in a dangerous situation just by rolling on their side and eventually rolling on their back. And partly why it's so dangerous is the, the four different compartments, of the four different stomachs that a sheep has, is that the gas will build up in, in the rumen and that the swelling can actually cut off the circulation and kill the sheep. And I never knew that about sheep. I do now. I find it funny because God has always given these illustrations as to how we're the sheep. Uh, you know, my dad went out west, my dad and my brother, years and years ago, 20-some years ago, they went out west antelope hunting, and the rancher out there asked them to not discharge their rifles around the sheep because of how much it would scare the sheep. And I, I always find these things just really fascinating, and here Jesus is calling us sheep, and, and I think it's fascinating that we have so many similarities, theologically speaking. So if the sheep wandered off, it's, it's pretty life-threatening. And here you have this shepherd who, he knows that he's low on the rung anyhow, on the social ladder. These sheep aren't his own, by the way. He doesn't own these sheep. He's been charged with the taking care of these sheep, and one wanders off under his watch. Not a good situation for him. And so he works very, very hard to do everything that he can to recover this lost sheep. He leaves the other shepherds in charge of the 99, and he goes off, and he finds him. Well, when he finds him, what does he do? He puts him around his shoulder. He doesn't just say, okay, Bessie, let's make it home. Come on. No, he takes this sheep, and he puts it around his shoulder, and he carries it home. And then he goes into the rest of the community and says, you need to rejoice with me because this sheep that was lost is now found. Listen, 
And the point of the parable is God has this great joy that takes place. And in fact, heaven celebrates whenever this one lost sheep is found. And what that does is that really changes everything that the Pharisees and the scribes think about God rejoicing over people repenting and coming to him. So the sheep wanders off, it's life-threatening, and according to the story of the parable, the good shepherd, he finds the sheep, doesn't lead it home, carries it home. The kicker is, you guys think that you got what God wants. You guys think that you understand all of these, these truths as he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you don't get it at all, do you? you've got all this knowledge, you've got all this information, you've got all these resources and these scrolls, and and you go and you teach in the synagogues, and, and you're supposed to be the leaders that people look to, and you think that you know what God wants. You missed it. You've missed it. Because God rejoices over the things that you think that God is absolutely abhorred by. And I think that, to me, as I read that, I, it challenges me. It challenges me. Because I begin to ask questions of saying, you, you know, the things that I really take joy in, are they really the same things that, ta- God, that God takes joy in? Because let's, let's face it, the reality of it is the, par- or is the the Pharisees and the scribes were convinced that they understood God. I mean, after all, they knew the Scriptures. After all, they were the teachers. After all, the people looked up to them. After all, they had all of these Mosaic laws or all these, these uh, Pharisaical laws, 614, to make sure that they didn't sin against God. And you know what happened? They missed the desire in the heart of God. All of these precautions set up and yet they missed the heart of God. So in light of this parable, we learn a few things about God, don't we? Let me kind of give you some specific lessons about God that I think that we see in this parable. We learn that God in the second person, specifically or namely Jesus Christ, well, he's the good shepherd. You don't believe me? Check out John chapter 10, all the chapter, uh, but you can specifically see it in verse 11 and verse 14. We also learn that we all like sheep, according to Isaiah 53, 6, as it's prophesying about the Messiah, that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have gone astray. Not one, not a single one of us is righteous of ourselves. You think that at times, that, boy, we can be a good person, can't we? You know what? Anything that we can do is just like filthy rags, according to the prophet Isaiah before God. Not one of us is worthy of the salvation that's been given to us. We learn that God rejoices over our repentance. Luke 15, verse 7, which we've already read this morning, is that God has great, in fact, there's such great joy, there's more joy over a single person repentant than repenting rather than over 99 people who are obedient all the way along. I think that at times, particularly that last one, sometimes we're skeptical about repentance, aren't we? The Pharisees 
had it in their mind that repentance is, is almost nearly shameful because you should have been obedient the whole way along. You shouldn't need to be repentant. Yet Jesus highlights the beauty, the absolute awestruck beauty of us acknowledging our sin and turning from our sin and then the joy that takes place in God's heart and the joy that takes place in heaven over repentance. You know, I find it fascinating. We live in a society that we, we put masks on. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We put masks on. How are you doing? Fine. I'm doing good. When on the inside, you know what's happening? We're rotting. We're, we're depressed. We're hurt. We're filled with pain. And why do we tell people we're fine? We don't want anybody to think that we don't have it all together. Isn't it fascinating? Or, or there might be these secret sins that plague us. But we don't want anybody to know about them because they might think down on us. Well, let me tell you, if they're a true brother and sister in Jesus Christ, if they truly get the heart of God, if you confess your sin to somebody, they're not going to look down on you. They're going to rejoice. They're going to build you up because it takes more courage to confess sin than to hide it. And yet, it's fascinating in the cultural Christianity that exists in America today, repentance is not one of the biggest things on our lips, is it? Rather, we want people to kind of think that we've got it all together, which is horrible, really, because the reality of it is, is we're all messed up. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that. Have you ever looked at a family and thought, man, now they have it together? And then you get to talking with the family, and you're like, boy, I am so glad that I'm not the only one messed up. We're all messed up, sinful people. And it's only by the grace of God that we're led to repentance and led to the freedom that comes from confessing. The book of James says, confess your sins to one another. That Do you know what it says? That you may be, anybody know? Healed. There is health and there is power in confessing sin. Not just to God. But to one another, you know what happens when we confess our sins to one another in accountability? That brother or that sister can hold us accountable. Hey, how are you doing on that area? Can, can, you be, can I do anything to keep you accountable to help strengthen you so that you don't fall back into that sin? Can I do anything to kick you in the rear end when you need to be kicked in the rear end? Usually you don't ask that, you just do it, right? There's beauty in repentance, beauty in repentance. And really, you know what all this stuff is? It's the same sin that the Pharisees had. You know what it is? It's the sin of pride. The problem for the Pharisees and the scribes and the problem with, with us that fall into, at moments, this religious attitude, is we just have a pride. We have a pride about us that prevents us from really, really knowing God. And let me tell you, pride is a barrier that will strike down your relationship with God. It will weaken your faith, and Satan wants you to have pride. By the way, you know what the sin of Satan was? 
The sin of Satan, that he wanted to be like God, you know what it was? Pride. You know the sin that, according to the Bible, God abhors the most? Guess what it is? Pride. And isn't it fascinating that at times, pride is what prevents us from truly knowing Jesus. Because we don't want anybody to think that we don't have it together we, we even carry pride in such a way in cultural American Christianity. We, we even carry pride in such a way that when somebody really repents, and think about this, somebody that's filled with tattoos from head to toe and they have spiked hair and they are completely diametrically different from everything that we know, and they accept Jesus, you know what sometimes we'll say? I don't know if they really knew Jesus. You know what that is? It's pride. Instead, we should be rejoicing and praising God because let me tell you, you're going to be in heaven with people just like that. I'm not saying that they're going to have their tattoos and spiked hair in heaven, but those people are going to share heaven with us, and we should be rejoicing. And you know what we do? Let me, let me take this a little bit closer. We, we even put up our own barriers in our own uh, social lives, right, at work. We do it in our own neighborhoods, right? That person's house doesn't look like mine. That person acts differently than me. That person's eccentric. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And yet we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven that we can be handing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them that they could enter through heaven because we've given them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what we say? You're different than me. It's fascinating. American pride can be a, a beautiful thing. You know, just as we're on the back edge of remembering 9-11. Do you guys remember where you were with that? And it, it, it's one of, I was actually in a pastor's meeting when I found out about the towers being hit. And, of course, we have a swell of American pride. But, you know, let me tell you, not everything American is good. We have some American attitudes that are, quite honestly, a hindrance to our spiritual relationships. Let me tell you, you're not going to be American in, in heaven. Your citizenship, you've got, a, you've got a citizenship that's more important than your social security number here in the U.S. or green card, whatever it is that you have that identifies you as American. Another thing that this parable does in my mind is it does a good job of begging questions. When I read the lessons of Jesus, a lot of times it, it just it begs questions that I'm forced to answer. Like, you know, like looking in a mirror. And that's what's so beautiful about the scriptures at, a time, at times is, is when we read the scriptures and when we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, it, it's, it's convicting us, it's changing us, and it's challenging us, and it's asking us questions about the person that we see, the person that we know ourselves to be. Let me ask you, what brings you joy? I had to ask that question as I was going along, thinking about today's lesson. The things that really bring me joy, are they the same things that bring joy to God? Well, right from the parable, we can see, oh, when people come to Christ, that's really what this is all about, right? A lost sheep being found. When people come to Christ, that should bring us joy. But let's, let's bring this home a little bit closer. 
The things that you spend your time doing, the things that give you joy, are they good things? Listen, there's things that we watch on TV that we laugh at that God cries at. TV is just a cesspool at times of sin. And we have become so desensitized to the sin that is in our society that we just don't even feel the impact anymore. And so there, it's fascinating that for we as Christians that sometimes the things that bring us joy really are warring against our very souls. Do I rejoice over the same things that bring God joy? Well, that's just kind of the companion question to the first one. Here's a question. Now listen, I'm not asking for the Sunday school answer. Because the Sunday school answer, and what I mean by that, the Sunday school answer is we all know, the, have you ever heard the story about the, the, the pastor that went and talked to the children and during children's church, and he said he wanted to use a joke to kind of just break the ice, and he says, what is brown, has little pointy ears, has buck teeth, has, has a big, long, fluffy tail, and likes nuts. One little girl raised her hand, and she says, well, I, I know that that sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but because this is Sunday school, it must be Jesus. Because, right, those are kind of the, the simple answers that we all think of. Listen, do I genuinely, I mean genuinely, really, in the depth of who I am, want to see lost people saved? Now listen, be careful how you answer that. Because that should be the heart and the desire of a Christian. We've talked about this in the whole last two series. And, and we see this very clearly here. We, in fact, the whole Gospel of Luke, it can be summarized in one little verse, Luke 19.10, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? You and I were lost. In fact, that's the name of the series. We were lost and we're found, right? The heart and the passion of the Christian should be mirrored with the passion of Jesus Christ. We should want to see lost people saved. Now, let me, here we go. How much do you really want to see the lost saved? How much do you, and, and here's how you gauge this, here's how you measure this. How do I, how do I look at my life and measure my passion for this, to see the lost people saved by what I do? Do I try to engage people in spiritual conversations with the hope and the prayer that they come to Jesus? Do I have a prayer list of people that I know that aside from the grace of God that they're going to hell and that God wants me praying for them because his heart and his desire is for them to be saved. Do I genuinely, genuinely really want to see the lost sheep found? Or does pride become a barrier for me? Does fear of rejection become a barrier for me? Do I really want the lost sheep found? Here along those same lines, 
I kind of wonder, when I, when I see someone who has been far from God, and what do I mean by far from God? Well, let's just be honest. There's people whose lifestyles and choices illustrate that their relationship and their attitude and their mind, they're far from God, right? If we know the Scriptures, we know the desires, and we know the heart, and we know the passion of God, and then we can look around us and we can say, well, these people, by what they're doing with their lives, their hearts are don't seem to be close to God. Do I rejoice and celebrate when, when they begin to seek God, or, or do I even have an attitude at times, maybe sneer is, a, is too rough of a word, but when I look at them, I say, bet you that won't last. Or do I start praying for them and rejoice over their, their initial pursuit of Christ? The reality of it is, is none of us were born Christians. I had a disciple in, in undergrad. His name was Christian with a, with a K. First time that he introduced himself, he says, hi, I'm Christian, and I was born that way. <laughs> born Christian, anyhow. I thought it was funny. None of us were born Christians. All of us were headed to hell. And it was only by the grace of God that we've been rescued and saved from that eternal condemnation. So the question then becomes, have we forgotten our past? Have we forgotten where we've come from so much that when other people pursue God that we say, right. You know what that attitude is? That's the same attitude as the Pharisees and the scribes. Do, do, I, do I genuinely want to see more people repent and turn to God? Or am I, you ready for this? Or am I satisfied with my own condition so much that I, eh, if people come to church or if people come to Christ, that's good. If not, eh, I kind of like them too, but eh. You see, in our cultural American Christianity, there is such a degree of contentment that it has produced spiritual apathy. We need to be praying for another great awakening. You know, during the second great awakening, what ended up happening is people were coming across uh, the, the, the sea from the Atlantic, from Europe, and, and you know how they have this flag signalers on ships? You know, not so much today's, but you probably know from your history that they would signal flags and they, they would spell out words. You know what the ships would signal to the ports as people as these ships were coming in? Send pastors. Revival broke out on our ship. You know, we need we need for our country's sake, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, we need people to passionately per- turn back to Jesus. We need revival. You know, it's easy as Christians to think that uh, that's going to be someone else's job. That's what pastors are paid for. Well, pastors lead congregations, and congregations are the ones who change the world. The people of God change the world. And for me, this was one of the most challenging things I thought of as I was reading through this parable. You see... 
I'm personally, I'm personally very concerned with, with the state of, of our, even our own church. I am so thankful to be a part of our church. God is doing amazing things. God has done amazing things. God is in the midst of doing amazing things. But I'm fearful because I, I sense from conversations at times there's a sense of arrival. There's a sense of, look at this. Isn't this amazing? This is beautiful. God has done all these good things. But yet a passion and a yearning for more, more of God, has kind of dwindled because we're okay with where we're at. We, we focus on discipleship. We have a good youth ministry. We have things that are continually developing with our children's ministry. By the way, we'll be telling you more about those things that are continuing to develop um, here in the coming weeks and coming months. We focus on discipleship. We focus on helping e- each other. And this is a congregation that loves each other and is to really be commended for that. This is a congregation that cares for each other. This is a congregation that when we see a need, we meet it. And my concern is, is that we've just been, we've become okay with where we're at. That in these good times, we've almost forgotten that it was the grace of God that did all these things. And do you know what I really believe? I really believe if God did all these things, imagine what he can continue to do. Just begin to imagine what he can continue to do. Who would have thought that God would have done what he has done here in Wilshire, Ohio? here among us, so that we can see these amazing things and celebrate them, but yet I'm concerned because I, I wonder, have we, have we lost a vision for God send more? Let us, let us be the community, the church that changes this region for your kingdom. Because I really do believe that amazing things can continue to happen, and greater than what we could ever even imagine. But here's the question. We got to want that. We got to want to rejoice over God changing the world and using us. There's lots of people in our region, in this community yet. I bet you if we were to leave, dismiss right now, some of you are saying it's about time. If we were to dismiss right now, I bet you you could go out into the community and find people who did not go to church this morning, not just because that they had something going on, but it's because they didn't know Jesus. Let me ask you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with people not knowing Jesus? Do you care? Because The truth of the matter is, is when we leave here, our hearts should be crushed and broken because there's people who are going to go to hell. And we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we should say, I want you to be my brother. I want you to be my sister. I want you to worship alongside of me. I've had some conversations with with folks. Just some conversations continuing to think through some things. If you look around here this morning, right? Just take a second, look around. Yeah? We're kind of getting closer to being full. And when, 
church statistics are is that when a, when a room like this gets about 70% full, you stop growing. It's just kind of one of the things that happens. What happens when churches stop growing, what, you know what happens? It stagnates and eventually it declines. So knowing that these things are, are real, knowing that these things are verifiable things, I've started having conversations with folks about, so what do we do? Do we go to a second service? Do we open up the gym? Uh, and I'm fascinated by some of the answers. I really am. I'm fascinated and a little bit heartbroken, a little bit scared. Because some answers have been like, well, you know, if people want to come worship with us, they can. Well, you don't fill your propane tank past 80%. You know why? Who knows why? Gas expands and explodes, right? So you, so you got to come up with something to be able to do this. And I find it fascinating that at times I almost feel like we're saying, it's okay if people go to hell breaks my heart. It scares me because I'm thinking, wow, we've missed it. We've missed it, and I don't have the answer to those things, by the way. But let me ask you, if you came in next week and there's somebody sitting where you normally sit, are you going to rejoice or are you going to complain? If this place fills up to the place to where we have to add another service, are you going to say, I don't know everybody. Chances are you don't know everybody now. In fact, according to what we know in the office, is that over 900 people as of this, so far this year have come into Praise Point throughout the course of the year. 900 individuals. There's well over 300 that now call Praise Point home. So, so, I've also heard some folks say, well, won't that just be so sad if we have to have a second service? Now, listen, I don't always say with my speaking, what, I don't always say what I'm thinking, but there's times that I, there's times I do, and that usually gets me in trouble, and I just want to say, oh, yeah, it'd be terrible if more people wanted to worship with us and call Jesus Lord. It'd be terrible. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes I don't know, I don't know if we realize how we're thinking. It'd be terrible if more people came to know Jesus and we did more baptisms and more people were discipled in the name of Jesus. And, and then there's always a comeback. Well, you're, you're talking about numbers. Well, yeah, the parable talks about 100, 99 and 1. I'm not talking about numbers, but each one of those numbers has a name and they have a life. And, and they have people who are connected to them and I bet you that they have people who are praying for them and we could be the answer to that prayer. I'm concerned, I'm concerned that we're growing content. And so, so can I throw a challenge, uh, just a personal challenge? Let's not be content with where we're at. Let's, let's aim our prayers to the same mission that Jesus had, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what all three of these parables in Luke chapter 15 are all about rejoicing over what God is doing and then asking that God would continue to provide more of an increase. Uh, you know, and to be honest, I don't have any of these answers completely mapped out. That's why uh, we need each other, right? We need to come up with a good solution together. But what is unacceptable in my mind 
is if we know, if we know that hitting 70% of capacity is going to stop our growth, if we say, eh, whatever, that's unacceptable. Because what it is really saying is, mm, we're, we're good with, with the people who are here. We're good with that. I don't think that's the heart of Jesus. So let me give you a couple take-homes. Thank you for your patience this morning. Um, my aim this morning has not been to create great offenses. My, my aim really has been, can we really ferret out? Do, do we really, really have the heart and the attitude that Christ has? And really, only you and Jesus can figure those things out together. Help of the church, maybe together we can come up with good solutions that will be honoring to God. So let me give you a couple things. Is it possible for any of us, and this is a question I had to ask myself, do I have religious pride in my life? The same religiosity that crippled the Pharisees and the scribes from really seeing the heart of God, does that cripple us? Remember that according to James chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the heart of the proud, but He gives grace to the humble in heart. Pride is a, it's a deadly infection that will lead to our spiritual death, just as it did with the Pharisees. So be careful. Look and see in your heart if you have any pride and root it out. You know, the only way to really deal with sin is viciously. Because sin can really cripple us in our spiritual lives. So do you genuinely rejoice when you see people pursue God? Like, I mean, does that give you great, deep, crazy joy? Because that's evidently what it does for God. When people genuinely pursue God... And remember, baby Christians are going to pursue God just in baby ways. They're going to have to get to know God and to grow in His grace and grow in their faith. And so it's, they're going to stumble and fall. But we don't say to our children when they're learning to walk, dude, can't you just get it together? We don't, I hope you don't do that. <laughs> no, we say, oh, yay, keep going. That's the same kind of attitude that we should have as we help Christians grow in their faith. I guess the last thing just to throw out there is really a locational question. Where do you stand before God? Are you lost or are you found? Hey, let me invite the worship team to come up. Um, you know, I, I don't know the heart and mind. I can't know the heart and mind of everyone here. But I, I I can't say that you might feel like you're completely lost. But after reading this parable, you should see that God goes to extravagant means to bring you home. The means that he went through is to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our individual places so that we would not have to live out the consequences of our sins. Today, if you sense that you're lost, know that Jesus can find you. And you know what it takes? It just takes a simple confession, this repentance 
that Jesus talks about. Repent. Say, Christ, Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. I see it now. I understand it now. My sins have crippled me from knowing you, and I need you to forgive me. Help me to know you. That's the first step. That's the baby step. The journey, oh, it's fun. It's good. This morning, I just pray that if you're in a place where you know you're spiritually lost, that you say that prayer, that you know him this morning. You don't leave this place before you get right with him. And then, listen, let me encourage you to do a next practical step. Come and talk to me or one of the staff pastors. We would love to give you those next steps. There's great ways to get plugged in into developing your faith and your spiritual maturity and lots of opportunities here. We want to point you in one of those directions. We don't want to leave you as a sheep without a shepherd. We want you to be connected and cared for.